Amplifier, an undeniable climate emergency podcast. We are thrilled to kick off our inaugural episode with Dr. Flavia de Souza Mendez, a leader for mission-related impact at the aerospace and data platform company Planet. Based in Brazil, Dr. Mendez has been working in remote sensing focused on forestry and land use for more than 16 years. She's an active member of such awesome initiatives as Ladies of Landsat, Women in Copernicus, Geo-Inclusion, and Remote Sensing Applied to Tropical Environments that all work towards a more inclusive and diverse environment in the geospatial sector and is the host of the podcast, Seen From Above. That's S-C-E-N-E, Seen From Above. We're in a frankly terrifying moment when we're looking at the pace of climate change and the climate catastrophe, you know. I mean, up here for the first time in, in my decades, you know, we're, we're seeing the skies choke with smoke in the northeast of the United States from Canada, which is something that just never happened before. Um, and we're seeing unprecedented heat waves. I mean, I think that, the, you know, across the world with the combination of El Nino and, and ongoing uh, rise in temperatures, we're just seeing what I'm seeing from every climate scientist I follow and talk to is a rush to try and figure out what's going on. And frankly, a, a level of, of fear, um, honestly, amongst the scientists, which... You know, I think one of our primary jobs is how to translate that so people understand, because I don't think it's there. Um, and all of this is is being rid out, and and in a way that the stakes couldn't be higher for the 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 indigenous populations and the world in the Amazon. So maybe um, you can talk about some of what's going on and just kind of a, a kind of a big picture status. Um, I think that there's. You know, political components to that with Lula coming in, which has huge possibility, but there's obviously huge resistance. So I think maybe uh, maybe we can just look at some of what's going on big picture with the Amazon in terms of the the process and the status and and some of how that's interacting with the with the political prospects going on in the country. Yeah, it's it's a question of one billion dollar. You know, everyone yeah. wants to know what is going to happen to the Amazon right now with this new political uh, change yeah. in Brazil. So, but I think to start, um, it's good, as you said, to kind of have a, a general perspective of the Amazon, right? And yeah. in that sense, I think I'm very proud of being part of INPI community for six years of my life because INPI has been estimating the deforestation of the Amazon using satellites since, I think, 1988, if I'm not wrong. And so far, we have lost, unfortunately, almost half a million square kilometers of Amazon forest. So for people to try to understand, it's like the size of Spain, which is pretty big. And so it's around 14% of the Amazon has been deforestated. And most of the, the, the deforestation is concentrated in Brazil, right? Because the Amazon occupies usually half of the Brazil, almost. But it also uh, occupies eight countries in South America. So the biggest part, of course, it's uh, it's in Brazil. But uh, we are seeing a lot of increase, for example, now in deforestation related to to the country in in some some regions in Colombia, for example. So we also need to see the Amazon when you think about Amazon, not not only Brazil, but um, but also like the other uh, countries who are part of. And, and also, when we think about Amazon, we need to understand that it's not all the same thing. 
because we can, let's say, separate the Amazon in different states when you think about environmental, social, and economic characteristics. They are very different. For example, the southern of the Amazon is very different from the center of the Amazon. Uh, the arc of the deforestation, where we call like uh, where we have the most of the deforestation happening in this region, is concentrated in the transition area between the Cerrado biome, which is more like a savanna, let's say, and the Amazon, and in the which is more like in the south of the Amazon, right? So the drivers of deforestation, for example, in this region are pretty much different than the one that happens in the core of the Amazon. Mm. And this region especially has been very heavily affected by climate change. Uh, there are some studies showing that the dry season is now, I think, four to five years longer in this region. And also it's warmer. So uh, Amazon in general is one um, degrees warmer. Uh, has already seen some around 30, 36% of reduction in rainfall, uh, in, rain, in, in the rainfall. But really in the southern area of Amazon is where we have the biggest challenges, uh, let's say. And this is about deforestation, right? So something that people know a lot, climate changing, what is happening. But there is one thing that people don't discuss too much. It's about degradation, right? So we have the deforestation, you cut to totally the trees, but you also have the problem with degradation. And degradation, let's say, affects more area in the biome than deforestation already. So we have studies showing that degradation is already uh, uh, the most, the biggest responsible for the increase of the, as is more like a, a carbon source uh, em emission like in the Amazon than the, the deforestations. But also mapping the degradation, it's, it's very complex, starting with the definition, which people go crazy in science when you think about definition. And there are several like types of uh, disturbances, also selective logging, for example, when someone go there and cut one single tree, uh, because the same way that the satellites uh, develop, right, how we are mapping this, people on the ground also have to change the way that they are cutting, right, because they are being watched. So they kind right. of have to change this dynamic. And also, for example, fragmentation, which was a topic of my PhD, we have a lot of edge effect. So you have less carbon in this in these areas in the border areas of the Amazon, and today we know that Amazon, as I said, emits more carbon because of degradation. But there is still some misunderstanding among people about the relationship between deforestation and degradation. They think they are very if you combating, let's say, if you combat deforestation, you completely solve the problem of degradation, which unfortunately is not true. Because in many regions of the Amazon, where deforestation has been already, let's say, contained and decreasing, decrease it, uh, but degradation has been not reduced. So it's not the same thing, right? We need different plans for, for both situations. And with degradation, there's land use changes like selective logging and so forth, or mining or some of these other things. But there's also, would you, I mean, there's also a lot of tipping points and reinforcement where previous deforestation, degradation, and climate change can degrade even without human intervention, right? I mean, there's, there's areas like if there's 36% less rainfall, that's going to degrade the, the status of the rainforest as a whole because you're, you're changing the conditions from which it thrived and these complex ecosystems can start to collapse. Is that, is that part of the issue? 
Yeah, also because I mean, in in it's it's crazy to see how how often how frequent we are having the El Nino, right? Like the dry seasons in the Amazon. So we have the human disturbances and also the let's say we say natural. <laughs> it's a climate change, the human interaction, yeah. but the, the natural disturbances. And in that case, I would suggest everyone to follow Erika Bellinger. She's very good. Uh, in the talks about degradation, disturbances, and it's a great research on the area. And yes, exactly. For example, now that uh, you mentioned these natural disturbances, this year there is a 75% of probability of the El Nino occurring between, I think, July now and August. Uh, this is a data from the EMET in Brazil. And so we have a very high probability and we can already see this happening in parts of the Amazon. And besides of that, uh, the rates of the deforestation are, let's say, from the previous years are still high. So which means that we have a lot of wood on the ground drying and ready to be burned. So yeah. I think there's a, this is a fire, let's say, is the finest stage of deforestation, right? And then can indeed escape also into other forests. I know that the the, the f last president, he said that Amazon doesn't burn. Amazon is a humid biome. Indeed, it is. But because of deforestation and degradation, we are changing the, the ecosystem, right? Principally in the southern of Amazon. So where we are having, as I said, less uh, like longer periods of dry season and also less carbon and higher temperatures and so on. And now thinking about like uh, the... The, the new presidents, right? So because I mentioned the the, the ex-president, I think in terms of numbers, I, I'm still very careful when speaking because uh, INPI releases the official deforestation data once a year. Uh, I think uh, it's usually around October, November. So the name of the project is PRODIS. So every year they, they launch like a number, official number of the deforestation in the Amazon. Mm -hmm. But also, uh, every month, let's say, MP also shows um, uh, some, they have another system, the name is DETER, so it's an alert system, so it's not a mapping system. So what we have seen a lot in the news, uh, it's something like, oh, data from MP shows that deforestation uh, decreased in the first months of 2023. This is something already showing that the government is working. So it's very complicated to compare because um, that's why I wait a little bit of the numbers because uh, let's say that January of this year, we have a lot of clouds compared to January last year. So how can we compare if some of the areas are covered by cloud in the satellite? So you cannot calculate, you cannot see if the, the, the let's say the deforestation was there or not. So, but I think, um, one thing that I can say for sure is that the speech, the let's say the posture of the presidency, the new policies change it. And this uh, brings very good things, especially to the Amazon, for example, investments, right? So we are having the returning of the Amazon fund, for example. Now we have mm -hmm. the US very interested to, to support the European Union, the UK, and so on. So. Um, I think the world can see are more optimistic, let's say, uh, about financing the projects that will help or support the, 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 the let's say, this battle against deforestation. Um, I, I also see that when the new president, he has a more positive, um, 
speech regarding protection of the forest, it can generate a change in the behavior, let's say, of the people. So companies, local people who are unfortunately because of economical issues involved in deforestation. I'm talking about the small players, no, not like the big companies. Right. So in the previous government, I think the feeling that I have, in my opinion, that these activities linked to deforestation, such as mining or even agricultural expansion, were supported by the government in public announcements like in the United Nations or even in internal government meetings. So uh, I think this kind of speech can give, let's say, what, what we say in Portuguese, carta branca, like a white letter for people to misinterpret or interpret in their way that if they cut a tree, everything will be fine because the president's it's kind of okay with that. He didn't say that directly, but there are a lot of phrases that is really showing that clearly. And last thing, unfortunately, there were a lot of institutions linked to the protection of the Amazon that had been weakened uh, in the last government. But now with the new government, we already can see some investments. So some projects which are supporting the the few projects, not only at the INP, but few local institutions in the Amazon regarding deforestation and so on, so like the amount of police who are in the field to try to control uh, the amount of fines that are applicable, like that they can apply to big farmers and so on. So I think that in, in regarding numbers, I'm still very scientist in that sense to kind of let's let's wait for the official data. There are a lot of data, but let's wait yeah. for the official data. But I can see a different uh, behavior already. And this is very positive. Well, and he has a track record from his, when he was president before, that there was actually significant improvement. Let's be honest, Perfect. not not enough. And that's, I think, that's not about Brazil. That's about the whole world. When there's progress, it's not enough. I mean, in the United States, we've passed our lar largest climate legislation ever, the Inflation Reduction Act, they called it. But it's having a huge impact. But we're, with presidents also expanding uh, fossil fuel extraction on federal lands at the same time. So I, I don't say that to point fingers. I think that this is a global yeah. problem, that even when there's progress, we need to make it more dramatic. But Lula does have a track record of actually getting things accomplished, which is also helpful. I mean, I think hopeful that, that, it's, that there are some numbers in the past to look to. Yeah, definitely. And you said about this, this in the old times, right? Uh, there was a, there was a, when Lula put Marina Silva as the Minister of Environment back, I think, 2005 or four or something like that, uh, there was a, redu a reduction of 83% of deforestation between yeah. 2004 and 2012. So it is possible, right? Yeah. He has done that before. So I think it's putting the right people in the power and the local people also there to understand the dynamic. I think that's very important. Like for, uh, like we have a lot of barriers to progress, uh, yeah. but yeah, we have a lot of solutions also. I mean, what also really I think is 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 really essential is is as you said, the local peoples that that bringing to the table indigenous people from of the Amazon, because I, I don't think I think of, as, as we've seen globally, you can't really separate stopping deforestation, preserving biodiversity, and, and, and indigenous sovereignty. Like, 
they're one and the same question, right? You can't, we're not going to magically fix deforestation and protection of biodiversity while eliminating indigenous people who've been stewarding the land for, you know, millennia. And that, that seems to be one of the hopeful things as well is that, that there's a very active, and some of it's political, like, and we know that, and that's why you're saying, wait for the real numbers. We know they can't help it. They have to be. If you're, not a, if you're a politician and don't act political, you don't get into office. So yeah. it's, it's understandable. But that, again, that voice, that intention of what faces yeah. are at the table seems to me really another no, hopeful it sign. Is, it is how it really, um, as again, as a scientist, we're always waiting for the official yeah. number. But you can see already, right? You can see using the satellites. Uh, you can see that there is something happening. Uh, yeah. It's interesting because, uh, but the deforestation in the Cerrado increased, right? So it's also something important for the new government to understand that uh, the protection of the Amazon is extremely important, but it's always good to look around also the borders of the Amazon and understanding uh, that uh, they are also rich of uh, by biodiversity in Cerrado and maybe understanding the different policies that are applied for different biomes yeah. and trying to reflect on that and maybe recreate or change some of these policies. Yeah, when, and then there's obviously a huge struggle going on inside the country because the forces that have been driving deforestation, the larger companies are now trying to take away the to basically shove the indigenous folks away from the table to reverse all of this and be able to go back. Do you, do you have a sense of, you know, what are the prospects of being able to kind of stop them? Because I know there's a lot of legislative and judicial wrangling that's going on in the country right now. Yeah, I mean, I think first we need to understand something that I wish that everyone could understand, that deforestation is not only an environmental problem, right? And I think sometimes people forget that it's a social, political, economic problem. And this I'm going to open a very quick uh, thing that happened in one of the many conferences that I have been in the last years. I was in one conference where uh, many scientists, I think around eight, they were presenting alert system for the Amazon. Inpi was not there, which I was pretty surprised. And all of them are from the Global North. I think it's very good that we work in collaboration. We should work in collaboration because collaboration is the key for achieving better results and more diverse and inclusive results. But there was only one person from, I remember, Latin American, and all of them were kind of from Europe and the United States. And I had this feeling because people were showing that like publicly there that almost saying like, okay, now they don't have any more excuse to deforestate anymore and i mean that's a completely wrong perception so yeah it's crazy to see so i think this is a kind of a big barrier that we have it but thinking about brazil let's let's come back to mm -hmm. the to the to the amazon in the in the perception of brazil right i cannot say colombia another but i can talk a little bit about brazil um ipa which is the amazon environmental research institute I think uh, in March or February, they launched a kind of a manual of, of solutions for deforestation. As I said, it's a huge problem. It's more than an environmental problem, but there are a few things that you can do uh, like to try to avoid that. First thing, stop deforestation completely. So try to really stop uh, by 2030, which was the agreement that we had and really stop in many senses. Um, but also, try to rethink about our own legislation because we are still 
in Brazil, it's still possible to legally deforestate, not only the Amazon, but in other biomes. So I think we might to, we need to rethink one of these policies to really see uh, if we really want to achieve all the goals that we are promising to, to anyway, to many agreements that we are in. Um, but so the IPAN, they were launching this very interesting manual. I, I recommend everyone to go there. And one of the things it's about uh, public land destination. So around 51% of the deforestation in the last three years, for example, happening in this public land, not private land, public land. And usually are these lands are the one where the land grabbing mostly occurred in Brazil. Land grabbing, it's a... Um, is the name given to illegal land appropriation, uh, just to clarify. Mm -hmm. And it's directly related to that, unfortunately. So many of this uh, land, let's say public land, are, are, are part of the problem. So that's why it's important we have demarcation of indigenous, uh, more indigenous area, and to do uh, a reform in the system in Brazil. So that's very important. So to have this like this the, this legislation part done in Brazil so we can avoid this kind of appropriation and land grabbing. So conservation incentives in private areas. As I said, it's still legal to deforestate in Brazil. For example, if you have a land in the Amazon, you are allowed to deforestate 20%. So 80% need, needs to be preserved, but 20% you can use for other things. So in this way, I think we need to create more financial incentives for these people to protect this forest inside of their private land, even the ones that could be legally deforested. So, and that's something very interesting that you start to change the perception. And when I say, when I, I repeat again, it's more than an environmental problem. I was in a local community uh, we call in Portuguese Comunidade Ribeirinha in the center, like in the in the heart of the Amazon, uh, close like two hours by boat from Manaus, going to the Rio Negro. And I was visiting this community and the leader of this community, they changed their economical activities. So they are all ex, they call madeireiros, so are the people who are going to the forest, doing the selective logging, removing the most valuable tree to sell. And since 2004, I think they completely changed their economical, let's say, activity because there was a project. So they, they demarcate the area as a, as a protection land, so a, a natural protection land. And they, they couldn't do that anymore. So there was an NGO supporting them a lot to, to like say, they, they could find another resources. And the one that they saw as a big potential in the region is a tourism, right? So they were educating people, creating school, creating infrastructure to receiving tourism. And so it was super interesting. And, and then I remember a phrase that he told me that it really touched my heart because it shows like how we can really change the perception if we give the opportunity to, to people, because again, people who are cutting the trees, they're not like, oh, they are bad, they're cutting the trees, they're destroying the environment. Either they cut the trees or they, they children, they, their children yeah. will starve. So it's about surviving, right? So this, these are not the people who we need to focus, like when you think about the bad people who are uh, destroying the Amazon. So, and then he told me like, Flavia, I was cutting the tree. This was my job. I never wanted to be a bad person, whatever, but was for my surviving. And then he told me today I see 
the value of the standing forest. So this this perception, this the change in this perception is the key also, right? Yeah. So that's a global key. That's yeah. a global key because we we deva- we we basically prioritize long-term wealth destruction. Yeah. Right? We've we've inverted everything because by by allowing the reward for short-term extraction we're, pri- we're we're financially incentivizing long-term destruction of our you know <laughs> oxygen clean water everything right and that's you know and that's what we're seeing in like you know Canada we've already lost twice as much in any other burn season and we're only halfway through it and i mean the the consequences are going to be devastating and generational and 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 permanent in many ways so like how is it that we can start to financially incentivize preserving wealth that benefits everybody and do it in a way because you're exactly right i mean yes some of the the large you know uh, agriculture companies that do large-scale deforestation and that's different a lot of people if we don't provide another way for them to survive it's 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 not even that they they, it can't stop because people will always do what they need to survive if they need to fill get food on the table for the next day that's always going to be the first priority because otherwise there's not another day that follows so i think that that's and that's not just a brazilian question right because the value of the amazon is it's essential globally so that to me is some of what needs to start really happening is how do we start to globally say okay if we all recognize that if the amazon goes the lungs of the world as everyone calls it we're all going to pay enormous costs that means we all have an obligation particularly the historical emitters like the united states who've generated so much of the problem we have a, an essential responsibility to help solve the problem by helping make those transitions happen by helping provide the resources rather than wagging a finger at the at the terrible yeah. people doing deforestation so i think that's i think that yeah. that what you just said is one of the most central questions in the amazon and globally particularly when we yeah. look at the relationship between global north and global south i think that's i think yeah. that's so incredibly important uh-uh. and just adding Harold, because uh, i mean it's it's the issue of inequality also, right? I think yeah. it's time for the Global North to take responsibility for the climate change. Mm-hmm. So as you said, Global North was responsible for, I think I read this day, was 92% of the global emissions. Uh, so our natural resources were used by then for their yeah. economic growth. Okay? And we can't deforestate everything, of course, either, because we also depend, it's, it's not the way yeah. that we should think. So it's very essential that the Global North um, has the economic responsibility to support countries like ours to make this transition to green energy, but uh, financially, and- right? Because we have we have we have so many good institutions, technology working there. We also have to think about um, um, because we always have this colonialism view that everything is in the global south; it's not so developed. It's bad, it's, it's blah, blah, blah in this. But let's take an example, INPI, for example. We have a monitoring system of deforestation since 1988. 
And as far as I know, I don't know any country in Europe that has a monitoring system of deforestation. And it's working well. <laughs> Mozambique has an incredible uh, program monitoring for Red Plus. They have a lot of like uh, permanent parcels there. I have been visiting one of the community. And it's crazy how much that we can also offer. But yeah, and in that sense. When I think, actually, I really want to dive into that because I think that's also kind of at the center of, of things. But I, I think one thing I want to say as well is it's not just green energy, right? Because really, when you're looking at the global south, land use is a bigger driver because in general, fossil fuel energy intensity is a lot lower in the global south, that it's actually the the, the land use shifts, which are, are the, yeah. the bigger driver and also have the tipping point dangers where you know if if the amazon's reaches a tipping point you start to see the collapse of it it's it's devastating so mm-hmm. it's not just about green energy it's about really allowing the kind of transition that you talked about in that community where they went from selective uh logging which would degrade the forest into finding uh, ways that actually took the value of preserving that that biosystem so that that feels like you know, really at the center for the global north is, is yes, helping the global south and helping here. Is, it's more really a modest form of reparation for the amount of wealth that was extracted. I mean, the United States, dozens of coups and wars that we financed to just steal wealth from Latin America, right? I mean, we're talking about 100 years of straightforward theft, and so much of the degradation there flows out of that process. And, of course, Spanish before that and the Portuguese and everyone. I mean, so, you know, I think that here it's, it's the kinds of resources we're talking about are actually a fraction of the wealth that was extracted. Yeah. Right. So we're not talking about a gift. We're not talking about it. We're talking about a small fraction of what was extracted being returned really for the global north self-interest. I mean, that's the absurd thing about it, is if we don't do this, we're all screwed, right? So this is, like, that's the conversation that I think needs to happen, um, is, is being able to help return some of the stolen resources to allow a transition that's in our own, ours, the global north. I don't necessarily identify on a personal level, but <laughs> I'm here and I grew up and I've benefited from it, so that we will benefit from directly. I think that that's really essential. Um, I want to switch over now because I think what you said is also something that's really critical, which is the kind of the discounting of expertise in the global south. Um, And I I think there's a couple layers I'd like to explore on that. One is on the scientific and the technical level. Um, And then another is when we actually look at the expertise and knowledge and technology and science of indigenous peoples themselves Mm -hmm. and how that's discounted globally that also gets discounted locally, right? That's, that's a national problem and a global problem. But let's start on the, the, the question of science because what you described of a major conference that was focused on the Amazon and one person from the region and everyone else's global north people just kind of talking about is indicative of how so much of the scientific community globally and then specifically around climate seems to be structured. That the research dollars are going to Global North researchers to literally fly the worst thing you can do if you can avoid it down to the Global South to do research and then come back with the data. And I'd like to touch on a couple of those points. One you've already done, which is, of course, it's absurd 
that there is a tremendous amount of, of scientific and technical and um, social and all, all range of necessary expertise, but also the value of research done by people from the region, um, which is not about not collaborating, but it doesn't actually, it's not a collaboration if, if people are coming from the outside. So what are we losing by having the research being done from people not from the region? What are we losing and what would we gain if those dollars could go down more directly to the, to the people from the region? Yeah, I think maybe to understand like these issues that you're pointing, I think we need to think about that science in general, like old times, is very much linked to the expansion, which I would call invasion maybe better, of Europe, for example, in Latin America and Africa. Uh, some countries of the African continent. So in this evasion, for example, we can think about science of navigation, instruments, theories that were present in these trips that they were doing to these countries in South America and Africa, for example. And here we have to understand that the creation and evolution of this science occurred in this context. So the context of the global north colonizing the global south. So we already see like a, a bias technology in that sense. So a, a more like a view of the global north, uh, therefore colonialist view into this kind of technology that or science that were already developing. A very basic example, um, when you think about photography, so when photography was created and developed, that I heard in a very interesting podcast. Uh, the name is Mapiar from, is the first uh, woman, uh, like a podcast in Brazil from ladies who talk about uh, technology. And I forgot now the name of the research, was a, but it was a very interesting example. So she, thought, she said about the creation of the photography, right? So it was created and developed uh, in a matter of an instrument. So in a way that light-skinned people with light skin look better in photos, right? Precisely because of this technology, what's creating the global north, yeah. where most of the people have light skin. So now putting this in more a geospatial context, which is more my topic. So there are some actions that we call collaborative mapping, where people from local regions are also part of the, the mapping of their territories. So how they perceive their territories uh, to kind of make their life like simple in a daily life, for example, having an address to receive posts, to receive things that they buy or and so on. So this is very important because there are still many communities. And when I say communities, not, on, not only the indigenous, which very good are more loud now in focus, let's say. Um, so these other communities, local traditional communities, they are sometimes not even mapped. So if you open your Google Maps, what do you see? Right. So there are still many locations that we cannot see in the maps in rural areas, for example, in Brazil or in Mozambique. So if you open in the Google map, you see that uh, some of the rural areas are in a small scale, so you cannot see so much detail. But once you take your mouse and go to the urban centers, you can see like almost <laughs> such a very good resolution of image, like spatial resolution, that you can see everything. You can see like what you have in the 
this territory, how is the distribution, how the infrastructure work, and much more, let's say, information. So having a complete and inclusive mapping is extremely important to this creation, for example, of public policies, how they would know what could go right or wrong. So, but now going to more the academic, as you said, like what we are losing, right? So, for example, when we think about funding, right, so that's something very important for scientists in many places, but principally in the global south, because uh, we still have a lot of issues to solve here, right, Haro? I know that talk about Amazon, it's something very important. As I said, it's also a socioeconomical problem, but we also have huge problems with violence in Brazil. People are still starving in Brazil, millions of people. So receiving like where the, the money of the government goes in that sense, what is the most urgent situation that we need to solve? So having this funding coming from the global north, for example, it's, it's always very appreciated in that sense. But uh, we need to first ask who are the people who are deciding where this funding goes, right? So there is a study very interesting by Karen Joyce and many of my friends from Ladies of Lancet, Sister of SARS, and they were analyzing like uh, where are this funding going or for example, how they in academic, uh, let's say environment, how they are deciding uh, because many of the times when you apply for it, for a tender for a project because you want to develop something the Amazon region with local communities they're gonna look at your citation of how many money have you got until now how many funds you have got until now so uh, and a study shows that 52 percent of the editorial board like the the people from the editorial board of the magazines are from us china italy and germany so when we talk about citations for example authors with non-western presenting names like mine flavia de souza mendes is very latino name so from underrepresented communities they usually receive harshest review when they are trying for funding or when they're they're trying to publish a paper and fear recitations even. Women's research, for example, this is something that I can talk about, is less likely to be cited by others. So the ideas of uh, are, are more likely to be attributed to a man, for example, sometimes. And so they're like a huge uh, thing, a problematic involving on this. So they are still... A lot of things that we have to tackle, uh, for example, as I said about this panel, when we see a lot of a panel only with men or a panel only with Global North trying to, I mean, how many times on Twitter uh, I have seen my colleagues uh, exposing this kind of panel, like, oh, what is the problem of the Amazon? How to solve the problem of the Amazon? And it's okay, it's good when we are discussing as a community. It's not that the Global North excluded. No, it's not. We should work together. But if we have a panel only with the people in the Global North, doesn't make so much sense. Well, yeah, but, you don't. I mean, we need to avoid excluding the global south when talking yeah. about the global south, right? Yeah, yeah, but but also when you say about what we are losing, right? We are we are losing a lot, uh, right? I think it's a, that's important. That's my work that I do outside of my professional work with the ladies of Landsat, the RSAT group, which is a group of a bunch of Brazilian scientists who are doing research in tropical ecosystems. So we are trying to make people more aware about the situation. So 
Yes, so if you have less, less citations from researchers from the global soft local uh, local knowledge, how you're going to spread this knowledge, right? How this thing is going to be applied in public policies, even in regulations that are now being uh, decided by, for example, European Union for when we talk about the new EU deforestation regulation. So are they considering the local knowledge? Are they considering the local, uh, let's say, uh, situation of each country? So we definitely are losing a lot in that sense. And yeah, but I, I see a lot of groups also, I mean, at the same time that I see that we still are facing this problem, I see that many people are in the fight, let's say. I see a lot of voices raising. I see more people more aware about their privilege. I mean, in my context, that's the only one that I can talk. I am from Brazil, so when I am in Germany, I'm not privileged regarding geographic location. I'm Latina here, I'm a woman, so it's different. But in Brazil, I have the privilege of being white, for example. So we need to understand our privilege and see how we can use this privilege to give the voice to the people. As you know, as everyone, climate change is mostly affecting the underrepresented groups. So they don't only need to be listened or heard, but they need to be in power. They need to be deciding the things. Uh, nowadays, uh, it's very nice that people are including indigenous community, local traditional community. It's very good, but we need to take care also to don't put all the problematic in their shoulders. Like now, community indigenous will solve everything about deforestation. They are the one who needs to solve everything. So we also need to take care how we do approach that. Yeah. Uh, who is responsible for that? Because some governments can just say like, hey, indigenous communities are the best ones to protect forests. And they are indeed. So let's then do the work. But it's, you know, who is with responsible what for with, And with what resources yeah. and what backing, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, that, um, and that's right, that, like the question of sovereignty is key, but it's not just sovereignty, it's sovereignty with resources and access to the expertise where it's needed. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, really, if you think about, I mean, I was, we were speaking with a, a professor from Egypt uh, last week, um, and he was just talking about the need to drive the funding to local universities, and really that not doing so, it actually means the science is flawed, because you're not getting the best data when you're getting people from the outside who don't know the circumstance, who don't know the communities, who don't know what's driving land use changes, when people might go from... Um, um, fishing and then the fish of uh, there's you know to shifting it whatever whatever's happening in a very specific location that's driving the land use changes there specifically and who don't have a history of the, in the area to know maybe that because not everything's been recorded on satellite so what changes have happened over the last hundred years that is actually generational knowledge that is explicitly low so we're we're the science is flawed based on really what you've so eloquently laid out of kind of the, the colonial nature of the development of science as we understand it, and that continues when the money doesn't go. And so I think that that's, I mean, I hope that, and I, I, I expect that our, this podcast, a lot of the audience is going to be people who are engaged within the academic movement, within the academic world, within the climate movement. And I think in the global north, it becomes central, this question of, that you brought up of recognizing our privilege it becomes central for people in these academic institutions, in the global bodies, to not just, you know, land acknowledgements, wonderful. You know, you start 
a meeting saying something was bad and we'd like to be better, great. Our obligation is to shift financial flows, to shift leadership flows, to shift all of these things. And that comes from, like you said, the, the lack of citations for women, for people with you know, non-Anglo and non-European names. It's also, there's plenty of places where those people could be doing, are doing brilliant research, but can't even afford the fees to get into some of these publications, all of these things. There should be a waiving of fees. There should be, you know, institutions that have the money should be subsidizing if the, if the publications need the fees. They should be subsidizing. Like, this is not just a moral right, in my eyes. It is morally right, undoing centuries of colonization. It's a scientific imperative, and it's an imperative we're going to solve climate change. That this becomes a central role, I think, for scientists, academics, people in NGOs and funding bodies in the North to actively shift concretely the flows of money, the flows of attention, the flows of publication, and, and use our privilege to give up some of that privilege, right? Because we actually all benefit from it. The science gets better. The solutions become more effective. So I think this is, this is one of the things I'm really, as I'm learning, really through doing this podcast, I've been learning by talking. That was the whole idea of it is Let's go talk to the people we're not listening enough to. What do we learn is I, I want that to become a central thing in, in our entire media effort is starting to try and engage in this question about how do we affect the science and start to concretely decolonize science, not just as a, as a catchphrase. How do, what does that actually mean? And I think it's a big, complicated question, but it's one that I want to keep revisiting because I think until we do that, the science will be flawed and the solutions will be flawed and he raised one other interesting point, which was that a lot of, in, in a lot of places, the universities are state universities, and that the governments are more likely to be engaged with people who are from within their own system. Mm-hmm. It just makes sense. I mean, sure. same language, same culture, same background, and same institution. Like, there's so many reasons to be doing this. So I think that that's, so, I, you know, I, I'm, the work you're doing on that front is really critical. I want to keep highlighting that work you're doing, keep engaging this, whatever we can do as we start to build up our voice. We're just starting here because I think this is such a central question. So, I mean, thank you because I know you're doing that work outside of your, your job as well with this. I mean, I love Ladies of Landsat. Is any of these names? <laughs> the names are best. No, Harold, stop for a minute. Now I'm going to tell the names. So I'm part of the Ladies of Landsat and also Women in Copernicus. But we also have friends in Sisters of SAR, Dames of Drones, Women of Waveland. So we are covering all this spectrum of remote sensing. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> and all voluntary work that we do, right? And it's different uh, perspe- uh, perspective. As I said, I bring more the, res- the perspective of uh, local scientists into the Ladies of Landsat. Yeah. And RSAT, it's, uh, yeah, so depending on the group that I am, I, as I said, I, I have a voice to speak. Let's say I can represent, right? Uh, and parts of the thing. So, yeah, but it's very interesting what you say about the local universities uh, and about funding that I, I kind of uh, necessary for, for them to, to grow. Because uh, we think that this is a problem only at the international level, but actually it's not. Right. Mm-hmm. So we can also see cases of colonialism within Brazil from different reasons uh, and regions also. So the, the most, let's say, most of the money for research stays in the southeast of Brazil, regions of Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, 
where the reach of the country in every matter is kind of concentrated there. And there are renowned scientists uh, encourage the creation of institutions, for example, to study, I don't know, Cerrado and Amazon, uh, but in Sao Paulo or in Rio, which doesn't make any sense, right? So this is a typical case of like our, let's say, national colonialism inside between regions yep. that ignores the fact that in the north region of Brazil, in the northeast, there are excellent universities and institutes excellent researchers that would use this money much more efficiently instead of building a whole structure in Rio de Janeiro to discuss about Pantanal or Cerrado, just reinforce and make the institutions a university in this region stronger. That's what we need. So I'm talking about that in a global south, uh, global south and global north, but we also have our own yeah. domestic problems, let's say, in that sense. Well, and you know, I mean, Brazil is the is a result of colonization, and all of those, yeah. all of that legacy stays tied up in the society, and that's yeah. So I think that this is. I mean, I think that this has just become central in in the scientific community and and in the climate community, which is at every level. How do we start getting resources to the places where we're doing the research and where the 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 problems are being solved? That this is both on the global north, global south, and at the national level. And I think this just becomes an imperative that everyone needs to see as really as, I think, central to the solution, that it's not a secondary issue. It's not a, oh, when we have time. We, we, we know we don't have time. And this is one of the things we don't have time for, right? Yeah. We don't have time to continue to rob resources yeah. from, from, from local communities and local researchers and local yeah. scientists. And we need to work together, Harold, again. Yes. In, as you said, like everyone involved in the society. I see, it as, I see this like situation a little bit like I see remote sensing. If we want to estimate carbon, let's say, this was a topic of my PhD four years ago. Uh, let's use, I don't know, uh, Sentinel. No. Let's use Sentinel, let's use Landsat, let's use radar, let's use planet data, let's use LiDAR, let's use many data, you know? Why you want to tackle a problem or find a solution only using one sensor if you have many, right, in your disposal? So just use everything that you have it. So you're gonna have different perspective, different inputs, right? So it's the same thing with, working together with local communities or with institute in France or institute in, in Matopiba in the region of many states. So, yeah, so it's really working together, right? I think that's the point. And if we are funding local universities, then you're going to be getting better data from field measurements, right? That's which is, yeah. is critical because, you know, that like you said, I mean, satellite data gives you something, you, you know, it's remarkable what we can get from satellite data. But it's also satellite data. It's from very far away. And, and if someone's local, not only are they actually measuring what's happening, but again, if you can tap into that generational knowledge of yeah. you know, what, what were things like, that, that that anecdotal and generational knowledge is actually extremely important. Yeah. And if we, so this, this brings to another, what I think is really critical challenge, and I see the beginnings of it happening, but so much more to go, which is, the democratization of data itself. So, and it feels like there's kind of two big areas. One is, is the data being shared? Is what's being gathered being shared? But then the second one is, is it being shared in a way that's useful? 
right? Because it seems like there's vast stores of data that are segregated into different institutions and whether it's universities or, or federal agencies, but it's data. Data just sitting as a pile of numbers doesn't actually inform anything. Can that data be drawn out and made legible and intelligible and usable to everyone who needs it, right? And that feels like another one of the central challenges, is, which is how do we bring together these different systems to get better data, but then how do we make sure that we're listening to everyone to bring in the data and making that data available for everyone to use it in the global south and global north, in rural, regional, whatever it is. So it, it, you know, it feels like another layer of the same problem. Do you, see, do you think that we're making progress on that, or are there things that, that you would point to on that? Uh, I have the feeling that we are. I was in last week in the Land and Carbon Summit in Brussels, and I was very positively surprised with the amount of people coming from local regions, sharing their knowledge, and how they were teaching people uh, about something specific that they found in the satellite image and they couldn't understand, or different dynamics that people who are not from the region don't understand. So I think in that sense, uh, we, are, we are making a progress, of course. Could be better, could be better. Yeah. But we are on the way, let's say. And so I, I see like a lot of um, some of, um, let's say, consortium being built with different institutions coming from different parts of the world. So to really share the knowledge, to really have a diverse um, input into a challenge that we, we are having. And I, I see actually this happening a bit, uh, but I, for example, when you think about democrat democratization of data, access, transparency, this reminds me of the Nikifi satellite program data, uh, which is funded by the Norwegian, which is uh, giving for free a high resolution data um, for all the tropics. So. It's for everyone to use, every government, every institution, every local community that can use this kind of, uh, let's say, with a better spatial information, which can support degradation, for example, mm -hmm. in that sense, and that local communities and or big regions are, are facing right now. Um, but I also see uh, there is still uh, a wall, let's say, when we talk, when we talk about how we present that data to the world and how we translate that data to the people who need that data. Yeah. And here I would like to mention a very good uh, colleague from the from the our sector. His name is Aravind and he's he's talking a lot about that a, a lot about that, right? How how like uh, consulting mapping companies are distributing uh, distributing that data to communities or how they are translating that data to communities. Sometimes, Harold, um, there is, I don't know, an institution who takes care of uh, fires in the forest. Uh, you see that there is a possibility of having fire in this parcel of the forest, so you need to tell the community. And then you don't send a map or you don't send a haster, so the people are not going to open in ArcGIS or, or whatever program. Sometimes the better way to receive the data is giving the coordinates, sending by WhatsApp, for example. I think people, people it's funny because in Brazil we use a lot of WhatsApp. Yeah. And once I have done a field work in, in Sofala in Mozambique, in Gonongosa, and there we were like talking via WhatsApp all the time. And then I, I even 
talk to my previous group like old times ago when I was working in Germany and they said like okay but how can you con everything is via WhatsApp no but we need email we need something official like that's no way it's via WhatsApp so that's how we decromatize uh, we do this democratization of data that's how we spread that and that's how we also try to make this technology and applies to the local needs right because we need to think about instruments, technology, access to the internet, or data volume, for example. So these things uh, needs to be reflected when you are creating a project, developing a program. So it should be always very collaborative. So I think this is something that we are still facing in our field because it's very hard for a scientist to step out a little bit and try to explain what they do to someone who has no clue about this technology but has all the clue about the problem and how to really solve the problem so also how we translate this local knowledge into technology how we can let's say include add this local knowledge whatever it is into geographic coordinates how can we do that right yeah. so yeah that's that's a great challenge but i but I, again I see there is a lot of development in, in building consortiums, but democratization of data is still something that we lack. But we have very good institutions like FAO doing a lot of um, capacity development. Capacity development, not capacity building, because we are not building anything. The knowledge is there. So we are just co-developing, right? Because we still have this term, capacity building, capacity building. No, it's capacity co-development because yeah. it's an exchange of information. So we always have to think about that as our colonialist bias. I'm teaching someone. No, you're exchanging the knowledge, right? Yeah. Or, or just sit down, shut up and learn <laughs> is often the first step, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and and if, yeah, I mean, I, I like that. That's really important. So capacity development. And in a lot of ways, it's you could even go further. It's almost capacity unleashing. Yeah. Like there's so much capacity that is just left dormant. I mean, and yeah. that's that's so much a, a, another artifact of colonization, which is how much of the world's population has been was just the capacity that was there for everything scientific development social development intellectual development that got that got sliced off from being able to do that and that's that's we're it's our greatest resource right our greatest resource is 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 the knowledge the experience the brilliance of people that we've been cutting out of the system and that's yeah so i think that that again i mean it it's it's kind of one theme of of how do we how do we start to really reverse colonization because but then you look at it and it breaks down and, and you realize that it's 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 defines and shows up in every interaction every social structure that we have so it's kind of i think one big theme and i don't think we i don't think we solve climate change if we don't take on colonization and start to reverse some of that yeah. catastrophe. I mean, I think it's one of the same thing. But then you realize that it filters out. And as you said, our language, our way of framing conversations, it's, it, it breaks into everything. And, it, and it's not something that just becomes on a list. It has to, I think it needs to become kind of center of a motivating about how we think about everything that we're doing. And I, you can feel that conversation starting, but boy, it's a big hill to climb, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yes, it is. 
I could listen to you all day, but I'm also aware that you've got many things to do. So I would, in this, is, is there any other area that you'd like to touch on um, so that I can also let you get around to, about your day? Oh, I think we shouldn't start that, Harold, because I could talk about so many things. <laughs> Amplifier, an undeniable climate emergency podcast. Undeniable.